there's the approach of like singles, not home runs. And like, and so then it's like, okay, well, what could you feasibly build within 30 days to try to quickly launch it? And that reduces your risk too, because like, look how many times at Threado we built something. It was like, ah, that, that really wasn't as good as we thought it was. Well, your risk was 30 days versus three months. Then it, then it becomes a lot more, you can take that loss a lot easier. You're, you're sad for a day and then you're just on to the next one. But then there's that, if you don't launch quickly, people kind of, as time goes on, people forget. But if you launch every 30 days, there's this mechanism of a like, oh my gosh, like they're just always doing something. And there's, and I'll never forget on LinkedIn and Twitter, just how many people are like, again, and then like, you give them value and they're just, they're overjoyed. Hi everyone, I am Jason Evanish, and this is the Practical Product Podcast. We aim to be the most actionable podcast you'll ever hear on products so you know exactly what to do when you take your earbuds out or your headphones off. Today we have a very special guest with my friend Michael Novotny. He is a former product manager at the PGA Tour and is now founder of a product studio called Product and Build Co. Now, the reason I wanted to have him on the show today is because when I met Michael a few months back, he was excitedly telling me about what he's learned about specifically building free tools as a complement to your core business to help drive signups and grow your company. I think many a product manager has had ideas and brainstorming sessions about doing this, but the number of people that have executed it and had it work successfully for them is much lower. And so I knew I wanted to have Michael on to practically talk about how you can actually do this, how to filter out good ideas versus bad ones, and and more topics like that. So, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Jason, thanks for having me. I love talking about this, obviously, but also product in general. So uh, excited just to get into it. Awesome. So, so take me back. How did you discover the power of free tools to drive signups for another product? How did how did you get introduced to this idea in the first place? Yeah, great question. I'll tell you a story about it. I think we all kind of see free tools, but maybe we don't really recognize them. I was at Lowe's the other day and I was trying to calculate how much mulch I needed to buy. And I was just Googled and I found a mulch calculator. You know, that's an example of like a free tool because it helps helps me in my journey of what I'm trying to accomplish, which is I need to figure out how many bags of mulch I need for the front of my house. But for this, you know, those are the things that we run into that we maybe we don't really identify like, oh, that's a free tool. We should build that. We should help our customers, our users become customers by helping them on their journey. But for my particular story, about a year ago, actually, a little over a year ago, I put a random tweet out on Twitter. And the magic of Twitter was, you know, and the, the tweet that I put out was, hey, I'm uh, interested in helping startups. And through the magic of Twitter, the serendipity of it, I had a, who I call a friend now, uh, Pramod, who is the CEO founder of Threado.com, their community analytics dashboard. He reached out to me in DMs. He was like, hey, would you want to jam out on product? I was like, of course, I'm a product manager. I, <laughs> I jam out on product any time. And uh, we just started talking about what he was building. And then he mentioned to me one of the ways that he wanted to grow was through this strategy. And we didn't really call it side product like growth. And that's kind of a name that I put on it. But he had this idea of creating this, this, community, this Notion dashboard. It's called Community OS. And so he was telling me about it. And then he showed me a site that really helped me kind of understand like what this is. And it was uh, by party round. They were every month, they were dropping a new product or a new website or something that was interesting, you know, of, of utility or just of interest to their ICP. 
And what was happening was, is they were just getting an incredible amount of following and signups for their social media channels and building this massive distribution channel, which is huge because like ever, you know, cost, customer acquisition costs is rising. You know, it has been for the past five years. It's well documented. It's hard to rise above the noise just with another piece of content. So like he showed me this, we put together a community OS where I, I helped build package and launch it. And we launched our product hunt. We got number one product hunt of the day and a thousand signups within 24 hours. And it was just like this aha moment, like, oh my gosh, like, how, like what just happened? And so we just kind of got back to lab. We developed, he had a table of brainstorm ideas and we, we have like 40 ideas in there. And then every month we just, we just looked at the next one that we thought would be the most helpful or the most interesting. And that was really our guidepost. Some of the launches were just, you know, if you look at it, experiments, they took off and got thousands of signups, some of them hundreds of signups. But it was really the compounding effect that, you know, and the story behind that, that was, that was really like the, the take home for like the success that we had with it. And when you talk about getting those signups, like, is it, were a lot of them just like a blip at launch or are some of these actually showing like sustainable ongoing traction and like driving people, like you said, the ICP or ideal customer profile, like, you know, you can do really well on product hunt and like the Venn diagram of the number of product hunters that are actually your target audience. Like we experienced that with my software company, Lighthouse, like we're helping people be better managers. We were number two on product hunt the day we launched. We got a bunch of help from our 500 startups cohort of founders and stuff to outvote us and tell everyone it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. We looked, we had a record number of signups. And then it turns out almost none of them converted because it turns out product managers and VCs don't have a lot of direct reports. And so I'm curious, I guess part one is, you know, were they the right people that were trying out the tooling and driving signups? And is it like there's a big launch hype and then that's it? Or or is there actual sustainable ongoing, you know, user acquisition you can get from these? Yeah. So I say three things that were kind of interesting that we learned from this. One is it depends on, on what your product is and like how much kind of free value it is. Like if it's like you're just launching your product and it's for a signup just to use the product, that's a little bit different than like giving a free tool of value because there's this element first principle of you know reciprocal nature of, of folks and people where they get a piece of value for free without having to oblige for like, you know, I have to give my credit card to try this tool out. And it's very product leg growth type of oriented approach. And just the other day I was talking with Pramod and he got a spike in his traffic and he checked his site. And it's because somebody had linked to the product from their site onto like a community somewhere and got hundreds of people that day. And that was eight months later, right? Oh, so you, fantastic. Yeah. So like there is that element, but you can't really control that. But what you can control and what was like the really kind of takeaway that was the most interesting thing was really the effect that we had on SEO. And this ah, was like okay. the aha moment for us that we discovered that I, you know, have the case study for everybody to see so they can digest it. Cool. Was, we'll put that um, in the show notes. Yeah. Hrefs, you know, Rfs, whatever you call it, talks about this strategy called link bait. And I, and I, I hate that, that it's a PR link bait. And I hate that term because it just sounds like very like scammy and just like growth hacky. This is not growth hacky at all. It's it's about just providing value and then getting quality backlinks. Like that's just like the ABCs of like trying to build, you know, some demand, you know, demand flywheel. And what happened was is or in this article, Ahrefs talks about like getting PR for your side product or your product and then that providing a nice juicy backlink, right? Because then what happens is people will flow organically to your site 
and then people search for it. And Neil Patel talks about this too. Like side products is one of the best way to get drive organic traffic because people will then hear about it. They'll search for it. And then what happens is the net effect from that is then Google recognizes all this direct traffic. And then if you have certain pages on your site, then begin to, to rise up and rank better. And we saw that directly with, with Threado. Several of his pages then became the first on, uh, on the first ranking on the first page of Google for some of the key terms that they had. So they had like a directory of apps that helped community managers. Like, so this then became a huge, we saw like a huge lift in the amount of SEO traffic, inbound traffic from that, because we were launching every 30 days, we were just pouring more and more traffic and just became this demand flywheel where then people would then go onto the site, then they would discover other things that were helpful to them. Google thought that was interesting and then began to rank their content um, on the first page of Google. And I kind of gave like the story of today, but what I didn't give is the 12 months before that, they were blogging and creating newsletter content and posting on their website every week for a year. And their, their SEO was just flatlined completely. So this was a way that we could kind of get this demand flywheel going by cheaply like and affordably you know, launching these side products. And then that, that was a way for us, because it's kind of hard sometimes, unpredictable how to get PR. But now this is kind of like a reliable way where you can kind of get some some backlinks and traffic to your site to get this flywheel going. So you mentioned coming up with like, I think you said like 40 ideas or something like that. How many actually made it to, from the chopping room floor to the actually like launched? How many different different like micro products or free tools ha- have actually gotten out there? Yeah. So for Threado, we did eight. And yeah, and eight straight months. And it wasn't just me. You know, they have a great team. And so I, you know, I led and helped them with the ideation, the discovery. Since then, I've created this uh, this framework for that I freely provide and help people with building, packaging, and launching it. But it's a team effort too. Like it, you know, there's elements of this, like you know, coordinating with sending it to their newsletter when we launch and things like that. Right? There's a page you can go to that's threado.com backslash drops where you can see each one of these, and then you can see, you know, it's kind of like our trophy case of all the different product hunt badges of number ones, number twos. But not all of them are, you know, and that and that's the key thing is like when I first start working with startups and advice and, or advising, is like it's it's not a one trick pony. Like in in sometimes the market, like I've had products where we launched and they like didn't flop, but they didn't get thousands of or whatever goal we had, and they just got hundreds. And then I had others that where I thought would would do well, and then they were they were like number one or number two, like. That happened at Threado. There's this one app that we created called Serendipity Bot. I built it with no code and it helped community managers make connections within their community through just a few data points. And it was number two. And I was, and I just, I couldn't believe it because the niche, you know, they've talked about like the TAM is so small of folks who might be interested in that, but it, it rose to the top. And then the interesting thing too is from a product manager standpoint, that really blew my mind is when Pramod saw that positive signal. He then looked at, at that as in feedback as, as things that we could build into the product, into the core product. And so we're now creating you know, this product in, uh, experimentation innovation center of experimenting things, which is so much cheaper than building something that nobody wants with actual coded development. And then we were in a, you know, additionally able to like talk to users and customers and onboard them onto the product to become users, you know, actual customers of, of the product. So like there's, there's so many kind of like additional benefits to it. Cool. We're going to also make sure obviously to link to your, your framework uh, in the show notes, because that sounds like that'd be super helpful. And I think we'll dive in more later in this episode. Thinking beyond Threado, like looking, looking externally at some, 
companies that you've seen, like what are what are maybe a couple of your favorite examples of this working in the wild for these kind of free tools? Yeah, one of my all-time favorites is by Buffer, which is a social media scheduling tool. I think a lot of people might know of it. Uh, some some might not, but it's been around now for 10 years. But it was actually the first time I actually discovered a side product. It was in like 2015, 2016, which I can't believe is six, seven years ago. They had launched basically, and this is just, I love this example because it's a great way for you to kind of think of like, well, how do I think of something for my, my startup, my business, whatever. And there, what Buffer is, is a social media scheduling tool. And what they wanted to do, and so what they did was they helped you schedule your posts for social media. But what was hard is like creating good content for that, right? Like if they thought of it and solved the problem of and the jobs to be done of, Hey, how do we create con- help our users and customers create content so they can post schedule more on our platform? Because if they schedule more, they're going to get more value from Buffer. They're going to be continued customers of Buffer, and their their lifetime value is going to increase, right? And it's a pretty obvious kind of statement. Like it doesn't doesn't take a, a data analysis to kind of think of that theory as possible. And so what they what they did was is they created this tool called Pablo. And what Pablo did was it took, you could upload an image and they had images, like really nice, beautiful images into like a, a frame that would fit within uh, your social media, like Twitter or whatever. Then you could put like a quote over it and a link and, and it did a few other things like that. But it just did that for you in a matter of in 60 seconds. And then, and then what they did was, is then you could click a button to then post that to Buffer. But they provided this free tool so you could also download that image and post it to your social media. But then it, it, it created a customer for Buffer to say, oh, I could just easily do this with Buffer. And you know they blogged about this and they wrote about how over the years, this generated millions of site visitors. Like They show the actual data. And that was not like over one time of span. It was over, over years. And so at the same time, I, I, you know, that's a really sexy story and that's great. For most startups, they won't get millions of, of visitors, right? Like Buffer did. But you, oh yeah, that- well Buffer Buffer's the king of SEO to begin with, and I mean, geez, Pablo is basically a baby version of Canva. Like exactly. they probably had no idea that Canva would be born the from that problem. Like yeah. yeah, exactly, It'd be magnified into something that large. But you could see how like a miniaturized version of something, even that is a large player in the market can actually be a valuable tool uh, if it's tied into part of the workflow of what your customers are trying to do anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Couldn't set it better myself. Cool. And I think you had another uh, another example of a favorite free tool that you, that maybe is a little more recent too. Yes. Yeah. So the other thing is it doesn't always have to be high utility. The buffer example is high utility, right? It can be something that is just interesting and fun. Like you know, and that, and, but that's a little bit harder and that takes taste, that takes some vision, that takes some convincing and that's, that's harder. That has to really kind of come internally from the organization. And so a couple examples is like party round. They created a lot of things that were just interesting, like, like throwback to like the early, the early internet days and created some merch around that and made it really beautiful. Right. And that just stood out. But in another example, of that is a LinkedIn post generator using AI. And this went viral just a matter of weeks ago. And what it is, is it, 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 you know, everybody has seen those cringe LinkedIn posts of saying like, you know, my son inspired me to climb Mount Everest today. Right. And, <laughs> and um, yeah. and so what he did was, is he, it's just a generator tool where you can write in a couple of like kind of keywords and like cringe level. And he uses AI to post like this make-believe story that you can post to LinkedIn. 
and it went viral. And so that's an example of a side product because if, if you align that next to whatever tool or, or thing that you have, that provides a ton of value. And so what happened is, is TweetHunter.io saw this and they, they acquired it. And then they, all they did is they put a button at the bottom of, of the tool, the link to, their, to the Taplio, which is their LinkedIn, helps you post on LinkedIn. They got hundreds of customers from this. And the, the founder, Thibaut, he's, he's uh, really, you know, he builds in public and he shares a lot and he showed it, right? So he, the data is there. The hard part is like figuring out like, okay, what's interesting, what's not, having, you know, having the wherewithal to like try some things, experiment a little bit. So I, I know we've talked a lot about positive examples here, although you did mention that sometimes the threat ones didn't work. So maybe can you talk a little bit about maybe what are some cases where you've seen like free tools haven't really worked out? And like maybe what we can what we can learn from from when a free tool doesn't have this amazing story, whether it be LinkedIn AI post generator leading to an acquisition or Pablo obviously driving tons and tons of signups. What are kind of maybe some of the cases you've seen where they didn't work, and maybe what we can learn from them? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's really so posting on social media is kind of like step one of like whatever you're you're building because that you're freely that's going to stand out because you're, you're giving like a tool, not, not everybody launches tools every day, but everybody produces content every day. So that's why like it's effective and like an amplifier to that is launching on product time and kind of like where we, and, and so there's that, there's this variable of it's kind of hit or miss. Like, you know, the product hunt algorithm is, is sometimes mystical. It's, it's, it sometimes baffles me where I have a, I think I have a surefire number one and it barely gets a top five. Or it or it gets like a number eight, and so the the parts where we've kind of failed is like things just did not perform as well as we wanted. Like when you get a number one and you get thousands of customers, then that's where the bar becomes. And then when you don't meet that bar, you're like, well, that sucks. You know, like what happened there? And, and unfortunately, it's just, it's experimentation. The way that you can kind of avoid that is if you can ship quickly, is uh, build in public, and so that way you can start getting validation, or you can do a private beta. A couple of examples here of like a positive where this worked out and a, and a negative to kind of help give people kind of visualize like, well, what does that look like? One is um, by Deepak, who is the founder of Habitate.io, is building ScrollMe. And it's really neat, basically one kind of page for and, and integrates with all of your social media channels. So you can have like just a wall of everything you post on all your different social media channels. And what he's doing is he's building in public, but he's doing it privately where it's like a private beta. And so what he's doing is then he's then just in true product kind of, you know, sense like getting feedback, iterating, what are, what are pe do people excited about it? Are they not? Then you get investment. And if you get hundreds of people invested in it, they're going to support you when you launch, which will help amplify it to get that ROI where you get thousands of signups. Another example where that kind of backfired, that's hard, which you need to ship quickly and depends on the degree of difficulty that you're building is um, actually with TweetHunter, who they, they create a ton of side products. And one of their side products was a LinkedIn post carousel generator. So you could just drop in some, some pictures and then it would create like a carousel. Um, well, they were building in public with it and somebody launched on product hunt like a week before they launched. Right? Ah. Um, but <laughs> they, you know, and so that stole a little bit of thunder, but still like because they were established and they have strong distribution, they have strong support, they're well known in the community, the community backed them because they saw them as the originals. And so that's the thing where you have to try to, to weigh the balance of like, well, how much, you know, how do we reduce our risk if nobody wants this thing? Well, you got to talk to people. Well, how do you do that? What's a good way you can do it privately, publicly to try to, to try to get a feel. And then also like 
I would ask the product managers, what are your customers asking for today? That's a good validation, you know, kind of step point. Like, what do they want today that's not in your core product? Can you deliver that in some micro way, right? And you don't have to think and is is big, fully featured. And that's what takes the risk off of this. Because if you're launching something for your product, it's got to be fully baked because your your users have an expectation of a level of fidelity. When you launch a side product, it can be anything. So is there a 10% of whatever thing value you have out there? Can you deliver it 10%? Deliver launches a side product as its own thing. It doesn't harm the brand and you give value to everybody. And, and then you learn from it. And so that it, I'm actually kind of really bullish on this as a future. If you, not all features you can do this with, but a, a way to really reduce your risk as a, as a product manager, especially if you can build with no code, instead of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop a, you know, a feature. Have you mastered the most important skills of product management? Do you know how to interview customers to learn the right things or how to write a product spec your engineers and designers actually want to read? Product management comes in dozens of flavors, yet there are a lot more ways to do things wrong than get the results you hoped. And doing things the wrong way can lead to frustrated teammates, failed experiments, resentful and disappointed stakeholders, and a feeling that you're not becoming the product manager you dreamed of. Being a great product manager requires mastering the fundamentals by learning the most important skills and putting them into practice for every project you own. You set yourself up to ship the right products and get more wins. I've taken the best skills and knowledge I've learned over the last 12 years as a product manager who was lucky enough to learn from some of the best in Silicon Valley, and I've created a 10-week course to help you learn them too. These lessons focus on the most important skills that set you up for success. The program includes templates, guides, and a community so we can all grow together. If you'd like to join us in leveling up your product management skills, go to becustomerdriven.com slash course and reserve your spot for the next cohort of the program. Again, that's becustomerdriven.com slash course. So thinking about this, like I know you're you're very big in the like you're very into the build and public community. And you know you've talked a lot about the success of product hunt. Are there any businesses that shouldn't create free tools? Like why would someone say, hey, this sounds great, but like actually we probably like aren't the right kind of company to to want to do this like is there anything you've seen where either you know maybe the industry or the type of customer they're targeting or anything like that where you think like a free tool is probably like not a great idea yeah there's a couple examples i mean there were three things i would say one is you got to be bought in the strategy like just launching one thing and just seeing how it goes and is, is kind of tough because what if you get a you know a, a false negative, right? Where maybe it is something interesting, but you launch it your first time and and you don't know what you're doing and you make mistakes and it doesn't perform as well, and then and then everyone internally in your organization is like, well, that didn't you know work out as you know it's a growth experiment, and so like you know at least trying three and then just kind of understanding there's a compounding effect to this because what happens is is then you train your users and customers to get this free value every month, and then what happens is then they start to take notice and you start to have this halo effect of, in marketing of like owning, becoming category pirate, which is what Threado did, which is like they own the space when it comes to community analytics tool dashboard, because they just kept on giving this value and everyone was like, just blown away by like, how do you keep on like helping, like and giving us all these tools? This is so amazing. And so that's, that's really kind of like where I see success versus failure is in the strategy, but like from a business standpoint, one of the examples, and it just, of course, left my mind. Oh, here's a, here's a good example. So I back when I first started, I invested a lot of time in pitching, cold pitching in public startups, ideas for side products. And so 
I only did three because, and then um, I just didn't have the time to invest in it. And I, I, when I get the time, I'm going to continue to do it because I've learned like kind of like what might work and what might not. But there was this one startup who is in the finance space, and they basically are a community of it's a community platform of investing. So like you invest in stocks with your friends, and like you just make it just makes it easier to see like, hey, what are you investing in, and just kind of like sharing that and making it kind of community. So what I what I pitched them was, and I'll I'll, I'll get to the principle here in, in a second. But I pitched them because their their whole thesis was like get you know investment advice from people you trust. So I pitched them on get bad invest, investment advice from people you don't trust. Basically, <laughs> using like parody accounts on Twitter who give bad financial advice. There's a few of them out there, and then creating a small app that says anytime that they give advice to do something, you go do the opposite. And so then, hey, that's the Mad Money Kramer effect. I like that. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah, I pitched it to the founder, and the founder was like, "Why would we do this?" And I just felt like I was like, I I, you know, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world, but. From his, you know, I, and I learned a lesson of like developing greater empathy, which is like be careful on the message that you want to convey because maybe that doesn't line up with like how they want people to be introduced to their brand. And so that's I think the thing is like when coming up with these is like especially if you're in a, a bigger organization, if you're not a founder of a startup where you can have carte blanche do what you want, you've got to get buy-in from people. And the risk, the riskier thing that you do, the harder it is to get buy-in unless you have that leadership from the top, right? Like or have that culture. So that's, that's one of the kind of things of like things that, you know, didn't work out as well as I was hoping. Yeah. I mean, I think also it's important, like you mentioned, like this is a portfolio theory play. Like if you look at the Thredo site with like their, their different drops they've done, like you can see where literally like some of them were like number one product end of the day. And then one's like, Hey, we got 200 upvotes and then like no batch. Like, and so it's like, yeah, you like you're gonna have a batting average on this. And so it's like, if you imagine you have like say a 30, 40 percent hit rate, well, if you only commit to doing one experiment, I mean, you've got a you know one in three, one in four chance of it working. You know, are are you feeling lucky? Like it's you're not like you're just not as likely to have it work out versus like. Well, if you have a you know thirty percent, forty percent hit rate, and you do four of them, you're virtually assured one of them will hit, and you've actually got a pretty decent shot of two of them hitting. And so, you have to have a level of buy-in that that's going to happen. Whether it be having the budget, having the support, and having the bandwidth, uh, which I think we'll get into a bunch of the details of how you actually do this, but like you're committing to doing a few of these. Like it, it may sound romantic to just start out with like, oh, we'll just do this one quick thing and it'll be amazing and we're done. But I, like, I don't think that's actually the case. You have to you know, think of it more of in like a portfolio theory of laying a series of bets. And some of them will pan out and some of them won't. And just like any other A-B test we run as product managers, like sometimes you're surprised which one actually is the one that works the best. Exactly. And the market, the market decides. You said it perfectly. And there's, there's also factors too like... If you launch against things out of your control, like if you launch against, like I remember one time we launched a product and it was just a banger day for products that day that just were amazing by other startups. And there were just five amazing other products. And so we didn't, we didn't get a top five, you know? And so like there's things out of your control. And if you, I really like what you said, which is a portfolio theory, you know, approach. And that's exactly it. And the sweet spot and kind of the interesting thing is because you can build things with no code and we'll talk about this a little bit. And now it becomes economically reasonable to take these small bets because you're not spending forty, fifty thousand dollars to build these. You can build it for you know a fraction of that because you can build it without code. And as a product manager, 
you don't need to ask a developer or pour, you know, pull a developer off your, your core product. You can just go build it yourself, which is so much more convincing when you're trying to get that buy-in and you're trying to get continued support because you're going to need cross-functional support with, with like marketing and, and, and your social media because there's a whole campaign around it and halo effect. And, and the other thing too, that's hard to measure and that, that people don't really realize is like the compounding effect, which is, you know, you are continuing to rise above the noise. Like when you launch, when you launch a product, right, you get, everyone knows you get this huge amount of traffic and then it dives the next day. And then everyone's like, well, how do I keep the traffic going? Well, this is kind of a way to like micro launch. If you launch 10 times, but they're micro launches, the cumulative effect will be higher than just one big launch. Right. And so, and then we, we've seen the effect for SEO and what that does is because then when we launched and, and this is on my site, you can see the, the actual graph that that Threado shared with me for their SEO traffic is every time we launched, what happened is we saw a stair-step approach every 30 days with their organic traffic. Like we saw the spike, but then it, it held and then it kept on going. So there's like, it was just incredible just to see that. And it's because you're driving all this organic traffic to your site and then Google and, and most people aren't doing the strategy. So I think that's why Google like looked at it like favorably. Awesome. So I know you've alluded to it a couple times in the discussion already. So so let's dive in. What is the side product framework? Like at a high level, what are kind of the key pieces, key elements, key steps? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've developed a framework for coming up with brainstorming ideas. And the crux of it is this, is really understanding your users and customers, your ICP, whoever, they're on a journey. We're all on a journey trying to get from point A to point B. And your core product helps them along that journey, right? What are the tangential jobs to be done, the tangential friction points that are just outside your core product that your core product doesn't do today, right? And then how is the way that you could, whether it be a different medium, a different type of, maybe it's not a feature of your app, but like a different way that you could provide value to help them, whether it be a tool or, or an app or a calculator, um, you know, there's tons of examples to help them along their journey. And so that's like the framework for coming up with ideas. But then there's also the, the side product flywheel which is like building free tools, then getting you know, the marketing effect of that for a tr- instant uh, traffic and signups and marketing, then the long tail effect of that, which is the SEO. And so that, that all kind of is the flywheel that, that kind of brings it all together to create this like product-led demand flywheel. You've talked a bunch about the SEO. So one of the things I'm curious about, because like, uh, you know, certainly coming from the the family tree of having worked with Heaton and Neil at Kissmetrics and then kind of doing our own stuff, both my personal blog and the Lighthouse blog, I certainly am a very strong believer in the power of SEO and like the reputation you build from that and just how much free traffic Google will send you. When you make these free side products, do you need to put it on your core domain? Like, are all these like side apps at threado.com slash something? Or do they have like catchy names like, you know, blah, blah, blah calculator? And then they just happen to have like a backlink at the bottom, like, or like powered by Threado or something like that on the bottom? Like, like it seems like there's probably some specific things you need to do for that SEO juice. And so I'm curious, like, did Threado and some of these other people you've seen success with are are they keeping them on their core domain or are they like on some other site and it all you just need like I guess a link back or a credit that you you know who made it? Yeah, great question. And the answer is quite honestly, from what I've seen, it doesn't matter as long as you're consistent. Because there's essentially three ways that I've seen this and all executed like at a high level. So with Pablo, with Buffer, the domain is pablo.buffer.com. So it's a subdomain. 
But with Thredo, it's a subfolder strategy. It's threado.com backslash whatever the name of the app is, like community OS, right? So they have the subfolder strategy. Um, and then with Party Round, they just create new domains that are not even related or, or connected to each other. And they're just standalone kind of apps. And I've, I've executed all three different ways with startups that I've worked with. But I think the, the, the way to answer that question is, is like, start kind of with the value capture that you want and work backwards from there. Right. So like, what is this, what is your strategy? So like for Threado, it was very important for them to have it as a subfolder. You know, Pramod worked, he was VP of marketing at Zomato, which dominated the market in India for, you know, ordering and delivery. And so they, so I really trusted his opinion there. Um, but, but really what the research that I found is in, in Buffer, you conversely has had millions of site visitors to their site because it's, it's on a subdomain. And the research that I found is like, as long as you don't switch it or change it, Google's okay with it and you're consistent with it. But I think the more important thing is like whatever page that you put this on is that you put in key spots and you have to be strategic with how do you start to tell your brand story? How do you then, where's your button? Is the link? Is it top right? And then where they can find more value along their journey. And then that's really like where the key part is, is like kind of thinking through, okay, I'm a user on the site. You want to give the value first. Okay. Once I receive that value, now they're open to understanding, okay, well, what is Buffer? Buffer created another one. It's a salary calculator uh, tool. I forget the name of it. And it's beautifully done. And they just, they allow you to like type in like your role and like salary estimate. Then below that, they very cleverly then started to tell a little bit of their brand story. And they said, oh, there's open roles at Buffer. And so they use this as a way to, for people to you know, apply to their job instead of spending money on advertising, but also helping people. And so like, that's kind of how you just got to think through the user journey is actually more important than is it a subdomain, is it a subfolder, is it its own site? I would recommend having it connected to your domain some way. Subfolder or subdomain doesn't matter. Party Rounds strategy was really interesting, but their value capture was they just wanted email signups and social media. You know, and there's a really nice case study out there right now. They generated hundreds of thousands of signups because they were launching all these side products. And then they just they said, surprise, Party Round is now becoming capital XYZ. And it's a financial banking platform for founders. And they instantly had massive distribution. So they, they put distribution first before they put their actual product. And so it didn't really matter to them that Party Round was used because that wasn't part of their SEO play because they were creating a whole new product that wasn't related to Party Round, which was the, the thesis of this is how we're going to capture attention and demand. That was a great summary. I think that makes sense. So it depends some on your goals. You should obviously consult with someone on your team who cares about SEO to see if they have strong opinions. But it sounds like as long as you're intentional about it, it will work out because in the end, as much as the SEO is good, it's also a matter of how you connect what you did in the free tool to the rest of your business. Yeah, your value capture. Exactly. Yep. Great. Now, someone's thinking about this. They may have a couple ideas. I mean, I think as product managers, we can probably have a lot of really great ideas on what could be a free tool because we know what our, if you're doing product management right, you should know what your customers are doing, what their challenges and pains are, and things that may be kind of around the edges of your core product. Thinking about this, though, as a product manager, how should they think about budgeting for this? Whether it be like, if they need to lobby for additional resources to just go and do this and like contract with someone, or they want to do it internally, like maybe you can walk me through both sides of that coin. Like, what would it look like potentially if they said, Hey, we want to over the next, I guess, year place maybe four or five of these bets 
how should they think about it, whether they want to do it externally or whether they want to actually kind of try and do it in-house? Yeah, great question. So I'll give a couple examples. One is with Buffer, like and they tell about their story, which is so great. They had one engineer and in a series of, I think maybe one or two other people that were building Pablo and it took him about two months. And so I don't have insights to know, like, was he doing that full time? You know, Joel, the founder of Buffer, he's pretty creative and was pretty kind of legendary in just his approach. So maybe he had the vision and was like, hey, we're going we're gonna to dedicate one resource to that. That's pretty much impossible unless you're the founder making that decision to say, we're going to do that. And generally, like, what I advise is like a couple of paths. One is if you have somebody who's super passionate and wants to do it in their free time, most engineers aren't that way, especially startups. And they, they, you can go that route. Another route is you can build it yourself. Like you can learn no code. It's going to take you maybe like a bubble. Like one of the, the recent side product I, I launched actually for my for, for actually for my business for the first time. It's called AI Social Bio, and we help you create a Twitter bio using AI. And we just built that with no code, and it took us thirty days. And me and another creator named Mark Fletcher, who's uh, phenomenal. But he, he spent months and months learning Bubble like to be that proficient in that, in that level. And so the other thing is, the other option is that you could you know, contract that out. And that's one of the services that I provide where for a fraction of the cost, like maybe it takes, you know, if you have a couple of resources within your organization, and some organizations do that, you know, it takes tens of thousands, if not you know, 100, 100, low $100,000 to produce something. We can do that for a fraction of the cost around you know, you know, 10K, Per project, or if it's if it's a smaller project, even less than that, for building, packaging, launching, and so you could do that, you know, as a um, as a product manager, and I would encourage people to because that's you're going to be a huge skill. That's a huge value add. Or if you can convince your organization, or if you want to really get going quickly and save time, you know, I think you know there's like our service can help with that. Cool, cool. Now, I think one of the interesting things to think about is like, you know, from a product manager perspective, you may know a number of problems your customers have. And I'm sure most of us are used to thinking in features. So it's like, hey, feature X solves problem Y for customer or set of problems or answers set of questions that somebody has. And they're always thinking about the next feature. But how do you think about how robust a tool needs to be or like what makes something a complete enough idea that like, okay, this in and of itself, standing on its own without any other like ties to the rest of our product or any other cool things we do, like how do you know something is enough so that you're both not making it too big? Like if Buffer, if Pablo had tried to be everything Canva does, no one could build it in two months. But if it was too simple or too small of a feature set, it wouldn't add enough value. So how do you think about deciding like scoping for something like this, given that part of the point is that you need to have the budget and time to launch multiple of these, which means you do need to keep it reasonably small. So how do you think about kind of how a product manager could come up with these ideas in a way that allows them to scope it so it is small enough that it really is still a side project and not like feels like a whole new thing? Yeah, great question. And I would say three things to kind of help lead with that. And one of my favorite, the director that I reported to at PG Tour said something that has kind of stuck with me that I feel is true about product management, which is 50% art, it's 50% science. And you know, and you, there is intuition to having a product sense, right? And so it's really kind of tapping into that as a product manager, but kind of like some more easier, like hardline type of data points, you know, for everyone that might be helpful is I would think of it kind of two ways. One is, 
Think of it, you know, in a, as a single feature app, single feature, right? And what is the simplest thing that you can create that produces the maximum amount of value and nothing more than that? And then a lot of times what that might look like from like a qualitative data is like, can you build it in 30 days? And because then that ties back to strategy, which is this is not a home run grand slam strategy. This is a, you just get a single, you want to get singles. Because you're looking at this from like launching four to six over a year. If you can be ultra productive like Threado and launch eight in eight months, you know, and when we're at Threado, we grew, we 5X their signups in five in the first five months because we were launching one every 30 days. And so there's the approach of like singles, not home runs. And, like, and so then it's like, okay, well, what could you feasibly build within 30 days to try to quickly launch it? And that reduces your risk too, because if you like, look how many times at Threado we built something and it was like, ah, that, that really wasn't as good as we thought it was. Well, your risk was 30 days versus three months. So that, then, it, then it becomes a lot more, you can take that loss a lot easier. You're, you're sad for a day and then you're just on to the next one. But then there's that, if you don't launch quickly, people kind of, as time goes on, people forget. But if you launch every 30 days, there's this mechanism of a like, oh my gosh, like they're just always doing something. And there's, and I'll never forget on LinkedIn and Twitter, just how many people are like, again, and then like, you give them value and they're just, they're overjoyed. And so that's, that's kind of like the, hopefully some barometers that might help. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Both having the single not home run mindset seems like that can help because then like, if you don't expect it to be a grand slam, then it's a lot easier to think like the scope can be smaller, not put as much pressure on yourself to like do something enormous. I think also this is just one of those underrated pieces of like the more you know your customer, the more likely you are to think of things they actually need. And so this is where, you know, hey, product managers, this is not your chance to do more BSing in your uh, spreadsheets and like, you know, MBA up something and be like, this is going to be amazing. This is more of the time. Get out of the building. Talk to your customers. As you talk to them about maybe the next feature you're building, that's like a big like quarter-long project. Listen for those little things that they're doing around the edges that like are painful or annoying for them. And like those like little nuggets you hear randomly in a conversation about something else, those are the ones to hold on to that probably lead to some of those ideas. Like, do you remember any stories since you know Threado did eight and eight months? Do you have any stories maybe on kind of how maybe some of that inspiration got started? Like I assume this is kind of like a muscle. You go to the gym the first time you first time you do a lift, you're like that was so awkward and like everything hurts. And then after a while, you get used to it. And so I'm assuming the eighth idea was a little bit easier than the first idea. And so I'm curious if you have any anecdotes you can share, kind of as you've maybe helped anybody start to come up with these, kind of where that's come from. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to comment too on what you just said that it might be helpful on product if I could real quick because I saw a post from Nick Gray of from Drop. He talked about like getting user feedback and like some ways that you can do that. And like, and it's so funny. Like we always talk product people. We don't like to get out sometimes. Not not all of us, but some of us. It takes effort and energy to talk to users. And like, but not only just that, but it's hard to actually talk to users. Like they're busy. They yeah. like they, they don't they don't <laughs> want to talk. Like. That's, that's yeah. part of the problem. But you know what? It's actually insanely easy to talk to people when you give them free value. And so, and, and then they're so much willing to because there's the element, the first principle of reciprocal nature. And so if you launch these tangential things or small things, now you can understand their problems more Then guess what? The door's open for you to ask about the other problems you're solving in your core app. So like it just can open that up. And I saw that happen 
when we like launched Serendipity Bot, like part of like what the mechanism we did is we said, Hey, we'll set this up for you for free if you talk to us for 30 minutes. And we had tens of customers, you know, almost, you know, that signed up for that. And it was almost overwhelming. We had to turn it off. But like, man, that's a great problem to have because then we could just give them a sales pitch of, our, of their product, you know, of Threados product and by helping them first. And so like, that's a really powerful mechanism that I, that I learned through that process that could be helpful. And it's fun because then it's not as awkward. Like, you know, you can kind of, it's a good icebreaker conversation for, you know, asking those, you know, talking to your users. And the second question, actually, the original one, I actually just forgot. What was it regarding was, how do you come up with ideas, I think? Yeah, it's like when you're first, like, I think once you launch a few and see some stuff working, I think it'll probably be easier to come up with more. Oh, yeah. Okay. How did we do eighth one versus first one? And yeah, exactly. Yeah, how did, compared to the gym. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Sorry, I forgot. I was thinking too much about talking to users. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> That's a great question. I don't think I have a great answer for it, to be honest with you. Because it's like, when does inspiration strike in the shower? Like, well, you can't really plan for that. Like, you're in the shower. Like, you obviously weren't planning for it. I think what's the most important thing is having a system, a system of record for you documenting everything that you do have. So, like, whenever I'm helping with startups, like, we don't actually start until we have a good idea of, like, well, what could we build to just kind of, like, build a trust and see, like, okay, we we might actually have something here. And so, I have a framework doc that just takes them through asking questions about their ICP, the journey from point A to point B to tangential things, provide them hundreds of examples. And then out of that, then come, I have a table where it's just like in, in the table is a notion and it just has like some data columns, like what the product name is and like some other data points and it has like effort, like scale one to five, you know, what's the effort scale one to five, what do we think the impact is? And just some just basic, you know, fun product manager type of like, you know, analysis of the value. But the key point is this is, you know, in our journey of like eight or nine months or 10 months that we launched these eight, we didn't always select the most recent thing that we thought of, right? It was just actually kind of random. And so the point is, is you got to have a system for documenting all of the things that, that come to mind. And then we had just created like a mini PRD within each one that talked about what it is, if there's any inspiration. And so then, you know, 60 days from now, maybe that actually you think of a better way to do that. And then you iterate on it and you're like, oh, this is the one we should do. And then, and then it, and there's this ebb and flow. And so it's just this bank of ideas that just kind of brew a little bit. And sometimes it's, you got inspiration, you go do it. Sometimes it's six months later, you, something you thought of seven months ago. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is Threado, they launched eight, but it sounds like they both had more than eight ideas they could have built and they didn't have all of those on day one. Correct. When we started, it was just with, with one and then he had a few others. So there was maybe five. And then as we went on, it exploded to 40 and we executed on eight of them. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So you can see that's how that, that muscle gets developed and all of a sudden it gets a lot easier to come up with them. That, the, the, now that you said that and you brought me through that, like that's exactly what happened was like, it was a muscle that was developed and that's a really good insight. Actually, I hadn't, I, I, never, I never realized that until you just mentioned it. Are you a self-taught product manager? Do you feel like there's gaps in your skills holding you back? Are you comfortable teaching others how you do product management? The fact is no one learns product management in school. You have to learn by cobbling together resources, reading books and blog posts, seeking out mentors, and learning on the job through trial and error. I've been there. I was a self-taught PM too, and I was lucky to learn from some of the best product minds in Silicon Valley. Now I want to teach you everything I've learned 
do that, I've written blog posts, shared knowledge on these podcasts with great guests, and now I'm doing a limited number of coaching and consulting engagements. If you're looking to level up as a product leader and want to tune up you and your product team skills, then go to becustomerdriven.com and sign up for a free call to discuss your needs and how I may be able to help you. Again, go to becustomerdriven.com. So I think one of the things that you know you always think about as a good product manager is being very judicious with your resources, whether it's budget or people. So how can you kind of start to validate some of these? So like, let's say somebody is able to sit down and come up with those, you know, five or six initial ideas, knowing that maybe you'll build half of those and half will get replaced by something better you'll come up with later. How can you validate something like this to see, like, get a general feeling of like, am I on the right path here? Is this really, does this really have a good potential and is worth being one of our early bets? Because certainly I think at the least, especially if you're at a slightly larger company and you're doing this, like you are sticking your neck out. And so while maybe the first one doesn't have to hit a home run, like it helps if the first one doesn't flop completely. And so like, how can someone maybe, if they're thinking about doing this, trying to get buy-in from their team or their, their CEO or whatever to, to try this, or just even a CEO trying to get their team to want to try this, like, how can you maybe validate that you know, of your handful of ideas, like which one maybe is the best one to start with or invalidate a couple that are like, oh, this is going to flop. This one's actually better. We'll actually, you know, we maybe test three, but we build one. Like how can someone maybe validate some of this so that they're more likely to be successful while still being intellectually honest that you don't know until it's really out there? Yeah, it's, that's really hard. There's a couple of things that came to mind when you were, you were talking about that. And, and what I recommend is like view it through two lens, two, one of two lenses especially for the first one, because you had this conversation with two startups recently and started working with is, is they're battling that same thing. It's like, it's, he's within a really large organization. Their startup just raised a hundred million dollars. Like there's, it's like kind of feeling like a corporate entity. So like you, you, it's not like a 10 person startup, right. Where it's intimate and it's like, and there's, you can like communicate with, you know, with the founder directly. And so what we decided was, is like, and what he wants to do is he wants to launch more because he sees the value. What I want to do is I want to launch more because that helps with the business. So we have to prove that first one out. And so what we did is, is we landed on, and it's yet to be developed, so I won't say it yet, but we decided on like a mega resource. Like what is something of mega value that you can just spend a little time aggregating a ton of information is always going to be usually a win. Like with Community OS for Threado, it, it had 800 different resources, right? And then we put it in a nice little Notion dashboard. So it didn't take a lot of development, just took time to cultivate. And we used some, some members on their team to help gather all this information. And the key was that we packaged it in a nice, neat, compact way. Don't underestimate packaging content in a different way, in a productized way, and in a more organized way as something that people really value. Because I think we discount that. It's like, oh, I could just Google that. Well, yeah, but you know, the thing is, is the market doesn't lie. And it was number one and, and thousands of people loved it and became users and customers. So what is it like you could give mega value without having to do mega development? And then the second thing is like another startup, we're actually getting ready to launch this hopefully in the next few weeks with one of the things we landed on is we had a list of ideas and the top ones were very niche specific. And so for the first one, that's kind of dangerous because your TAM is small. You're just very niche specific. So like you know, how many people are going to really care about that to get the amplifying, like, whoa, that's amazing on product hunt. Well, there's many different ICPs on product hunt. So then you run into that problem of, 
quote unquote flopping or not getting as much traction as you want. So how can you create a more broader appeal for it for that first one, still giving value for your niche? And maybe that's another product, or maybe you expand the feature set. But one, you know, one example is like we're launching like audio tracks for ads as a side product, free audio tracks, like really nice professional cut audio tracks. Uh, well, the, the ICP for that is really small, right? So I, I, my recommendation was, is, hey, let's expand this. Like, what could this else be used for? What are all the additional use cases? Classic you know, product manager brainstorm exercises, right? Well, it could be used for promo. It could be used for podcasts. It could be used for startup video promo. You could, you know, whatever, like video and, and, and audio and all different types of things. So then we just, we, we packaged it differently. We could try to create a, a greater appeal. So that would be one way that you could kind of reduce your risk of like being maybe building something too narrow and on your first one, because you still want to deliver like precise value, but it has to be kind of like a ebb and a flow because you're managing the in, internal political, you know, organization as well with these. Yeah. I'm noticing a lot of this, like a lot of this actually has a lot of marketing appeal. So if I'm hearing this right, as much as product managers may be involved and have a lot of the insights specifically into kind of the nuggets that become the product, it seems like marketing, it like, you need to call up your BFF in marketing and like collaborate with them on this a lot because that ends up being a key part of how this actually wins. Absolutely. Like that's huge because you've got to think about distribution first. And that's the biggest lesson I learned as a product manager before that I was a founder of a startup. And where I failed is in classic kind of Justin Kahn tweeted about this first time founders focus on the product, second time founders focus on distribution. I think he used a different word than focus, but you know, are obsessed about the the, the they use the word obsessed. Second time founders are obsessed about the distribution. And there was a hard lesson I learned because my startup didn't take off. And so as a product, like I always I try to apply that is like in the lesson I learned that I've, that's hurt me is like, think about distribution first. Okay. So who's going to actually get this out there through social media, through the newsletter, through all your distribution arms and product hunt as well. That's also like a, can be a marketing activity, right? But a lot of product managers help with that. So like, it depends on your organization. But it's that cross-functional component because, like, with one with one startup, we he, you know before we got the 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 the, the go ahead is he we had an internal meeting with marketing on hey this is how we have to think about we need some support when we launch right so there's a, it's a huge component. Great. So I think building it and they will come is kind of a fallacy. So besides like making sure it's valuable to your existing customer base, which maybe large or small by itself, but obviously you want to attract new people too. What should people do to make the free tool successful? Kind of building on this kind of partnering with marketing to actually not just get maybe SEO juice later, but making it successful. Like I know you talked about product hunt a lot and that's like one kind of audience, but how should product people think about kind of the distribution side of this to get that flywheel started? So Google maybe recognizes, hey, there's a lot of traffic that showed up here, and and some of the, like the long tail things will take a while to kick in. So, what are kinds of things that someone should think about to make sure that the launch has a fair shot at working out? Yeah, great question. I think it's a fantastic question, especially for like if you're a startup who doesn't have those distribution pipes like quite figured out, and, and it's it's harder to rank higher on product, and I'm noticing it's becoming harder. I mean, it's, it's advantage for those who who have more better distribution because they can drive more traffic to product hunt and affect the ranking. And so, and that's why the, the, the key is is like kind of you know launching it early, launching small, small, and then thinking it as like a, a portfolio theory, you know, or small bets. 
and really just lever. And so what I would recommend is that you just have to put your hands in the dirt and you got to use your real relationships that you've built up. And you've got to then, before you ask for help on your launch, you need to be thinking 60 days out. You need to be thinking, okay, I want to launch this 60 days from now. I need to start now engaging with communities, with my network. And a one-on-one basis, it's going to take some investment, you know, 15, 30 minutes a day, probably, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is when you think about all the things you've got to do. How do you give value to them first and help them in their whatever communities, like say you're involved in a product community Slack group or something like that. And then, and that's honestly like where if you don't have that distribution pipe where you need to start. And that's where I started with all of my product launches and, you know, have a network of, of hundreds of folks that I've helped, but they help me when, when I need it, whether it be feedback or maybe they're an influencer, they can give it. Maybe this is interesting to them. I can get social proof. I can then also amplify it when we launch. And so those are the muscles that you've, you need to build up because that takes time. Relationships take time. Right. So it almost sounds like then, while there is a chance that something will go viral, uh, it also sounds like part of this, part of also the portfolio theory working in your favor is just the fact that like, you'll get better and better at launching them. And one launch, one launch helps support future launches basically. And so as much as it may be, hey, you don't know which one of them is going to be the biggest hit. It's also that the act of committing to a series of launches will make it easier for future launches to be more successful. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. And one of the ways that I help is I have a whole system for launching that has like a Notion dashboard. And so it's very Kanban product manager style. And then we just become a machine. So that's what happened at Threados. We just became a machine. So then everybody knew their roles. And then when they were Dubai and we just executed. When I first started with a startup, it takes like 60 to 75 days sometimes to get the first one out because you don't have that muscle. You don't have that system yet. You're establishing it. So, and even with Threado, our first one took, I think, 45 to 60 days or something like that. And that's when we, we had the founder on board. So he was giving everybody you know, driving everybody to do what they need to do because he, he and I worked together on it. So we had that like get stuff done versus just other people in the organization will get to it when they get to it. So, and that's the other thing is that's helpful is when you do start launching them, people start to feel the effects of it. Like, Oh, you know, when people feel a good thing, they want to help more with a good thing. So that's another part that happens. Now let's talk a little bit about that. So you go and you, you think long and hard. How do you know your customers? You take some of those nuggets you've heard as you get out of the building and actually talk to your customers. And you realize that there's a handful of tool ideas you have and you're going to build a series of them out. Making sure you actually tie that back to your core product is an important step in the process. And so I'm curious what you think are the best ways to tie a free tool, a free thing you, you give away to your paid product, to you know whether you want to drive signups, drive free trials, maybe drive demos of what you're doing, depending on the size and type of your business. How do you think about tie, tying them together? What are kind of some of the, the, the best practices or pitfalls to avoid? Yeah, great question. I don't know. I think that's a really hard question because it kind of depends on like the size of the business and, and what it is that you're creating. Like Just kind of some examples that come to mind is... And, and also too, it's, I think you have to evaluate... I think it's highly personal. So give a, let me give a couple examples. Like Buffer, for example, was very, very Pablo was what I would call not a strong virality effect, very weak virality effect. They didn't even put buffer on like if you like normally like you know like if you use a product for free, they'll 
they'll put their brand logo on it. Like if you use a type form or something for free. So there's like a low virality effect there, right? Buffer didn't even do that. Like they didn't even put their branding on there. All they did was they put a button to say use with button with buffer in the top right. That was satisfactory for the value capture versus like there's this one LinkedIn tool that helps you generate like sales prompts for reaching out to uh, LinkedIn. And they created all these prompts that you could copy and paste it. And then they were very discreet. Like through these prompts, there was just a button that says use this with their tool. And then there's other approaches where you have to sign up for the tool to use it or to get all of it. Like Threado did that one for one launch where they had all these automation workflows. We provided ways you could do this with using other tools that was very high friction to try to educate the customer like, oh, this is so much easier with this tool. And so that's the other thing is you can educate your customers so that they don't have to like sign up or put down their credit card to understand the value because that's, that's a big component of it. And so it's really hard. And that's, that's part of the, that's the art of the product, I think, which is like understanding like, where's that conversion rate? Are you happy with that conversion rate? What's the, you know, and, and then in and, and go from there and then just testing and learning, like putting it out there. And then maybe you, you put it out there publicly, like a day before you launch, see what happens. And then you adjust accordingly. Have you seen people like I, I think one of the things, you know, if you if you get marketing involved, depending on on the person, you know, one of the things they can always be looking for is like, oh man, like I know it's free, but like, can we do an email capture? Like gate it a little bit and things like that. Do you have any opinion on things like that where it's like, hey, you gotta give us your email address in order to use this and things like that? Yeah, I think it's perfectly acceptable, um, depending on the expectation of the customer. So kind of talking ambiguously, but like, for example, that's what's so nice about like a notion dashboard is it's a natural gate, right? Which is like, I can't give this to you unless you give me your email so I can send it to you. Like, oh, okay. Right. And so like, that's like obvious where it becomes not as obvious is like, and that's a, that's a hard internal thing is like when you're developing some of these products and is, and that's why like with one of this, this larger customer that startup who raised a hundred million is they were like, I have to show that we captured leads. And I, and if they, if these users, if we do this, this activity, and then they enter in through the main main landing page. I don't get credit for that, right? And so then that goes in. That's really tricky because that goes into what type of product you create. Because that's why we kind of went with the notion, which is like, okay, well, we can pretty much guarantee, not guarantee, but like increase the likelihood tremendously. We'll get credit for this, so that we he could show the value for the business case of building it and and doing that. And so that's a, that's another component that that is that is difficult. That's not easy because. You have, if depending on the organization or who is directing it, but you know, and if you're a small organization like with Threado, for example, some a lot of them were all of them were email signups where you had to put your email down, and that was very important. And that led in every month that led to like one or two like major accounts for them, and so then it just became a no brainer to continue to do it because they're getting ROI. So it's a tough question, it's a tough balance. Cool. Cool. I mean, it sounds like also you should, it, it depends on what the free product does. And so you should try and keep it kind of somewhat natural to that, whether it be just saying, Hey, like I know Kiss Insights back in the day, you know, got lots of growth simply by making it. So their free version of their, you know, pop-up survey on websites just said powered by Kiss Insights. Like sometimes a little powered by could be enough to drive a lot of traffic depending on the nature of your business. But in other cases, that's not really an option, or it could be so tied into it. Like I realized you said Buffer was very like agnostic about putting their their stuff in there. They could have very easily been like one click, like click to send this to Buffer and like share with our social media tool. 
So it, it seems like part of it is definitely putting on your product hat and thinking about like what is natural to ask for and what isn't going to be like interruptive. Right. Yep. That's a good way good way of putting it. Cool. So thinking about this thing kind of like again, like trying to have that longer time horizon. Like we're not gonna do one bet and hope it pays off and like that's it. It's like you're committing to doing a series of bets. So I'm curious, like, how much do you see with some of these things having ongoing maintenance? And like, if you have one that's kind of a dud, didn't work out, like, do you leave it up as is just like part of the, I guess, hall, hall of hall of record? Or do you take things like that down? Like, how does maintenance work? Like looking back, like someone like Threado who's done like eight of these bets, like, are they going to leave all eight up forever? Do the ones that work really great, do you invest more time in and improve or like do anything to upkeep? Or can you really build something in 30 days and then like you don't really need to come back to it much? Yeah, great question. So I think kind of kind of two things you, you're asking is like a technical type of maintenance and like operational maintenance. Like, do we kind of keep this up? And I've seen it work both ways. And I think from a technical standpoint, like there should not be a lot of technical debt because they're very small, small apps. And so the, the maintenance is, is, is really small. I think one time of, uh, at actually out of the 16 products we've launched almost all of them this year, one of them had, had a issue with a, it was an air table automation that broke or something like that. And so we had to fix it. And so like by nature, there's kind of low technical debt there. So the maintenance is not like cumbersome, like you would have for a full application from operational standpoint. Do you leave duds up or take them down? I leave them all up. You know, the thing is, is like, there's a couple things. One, it's still provided value to somebody and don't underestimate who it might provide value to. Like I remember with Threado, I won't say which customer it is. It's actually a, a, it turned into a major yearly contract deal for them. One of our worst launches, they came, they discovered us Threado through that launch. Nice. That's a great story. And so, and, and so that's the thing is like, you never, and that's the hard thing about marketing is you don't know like what are you know because people just don't see one thing and they're instantly a customer normally it's a cumulative effect of things but like it, it the same so like sometimes like that thing might not be as good as you thought or return as much value but it was still yet again another way that you rose above the noise you still were you still had your your customers users attention it's a it's at, at worst it's a it's still a marketing activity for brand awareness and for giving value and goodwill and trust and, and things like that and so I'd say leave them up. Um, I have seen like, cause I have a, I have a database of, you know, like almost 200 side products. And I, I use that as inspiration. One of them is from spark Toro, I think. And they took it down. It was a really nice little calculator tool. And I was like, I loved it. I don't know why they took it down. Maybe it just was, they weren't getting the value or it was just too much. They didn't, nobody was maintaining it. And so then they were worried about it producing a bad result, which is probably what it was. Like, what does it take to maintain it is probably like operationally. Maybe a spam bot attacked it or something. I've seen some weird stuff on some... Yeah, I've seen some weird stuff sometimes on forums that just like, you know, I don't know what kind of script hit it, but like, you know, now we're getting hundreds and hundreds of submissions and stuff that are like crap and it's like starting to get expensive and it's like, oh, you know, we we either need to take that form down or, you know, we're going to have to do something to like combat this, you know, throw in a capture or something. Like that. Yeah, that's great that you said a really good quick story on this that's happening recent is... Tebow, a tweet hunter, created this free AI tool where it can create like 10 free tweets for you based off of some profile. And he was showing like the MRR for it was like 7,000. The cost was like 7.1,000. So it's oh. like, yeah, like because it was producing 
so many hits because like 10, like per use case was getting like 10 and the cost, because I just developed an AI tool is like 0.003 cents per like API call on the open AI. And so then he was just like bombarding it. And so then, then it becomes cost per hit of like, well, this, this is not working out. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, thinking about actually the best case scenario where one of these things works, you know, have you seen where maybe these kind of like free little apps actually become something that like the company should monetize? And if so, like, how do they recognize it? Did they literally build on what they did or did they keep that free and then build a more robust version separately? Yeah, wow. That's an awesome question. So have I seen any products, free products that something you should monetize or should you pull the trigger? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like if you think about it, I mean, Pablo is a baby version of Canva and Canva is now a billion dollar company. Like in theory, maybe Buffer could have been like, wait a second, we should go much bigger with this. Yeah, we missed this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joel's kicking himself on that. Like, <laughs> I should have built Canva. I had it. That's a great question. I'm trying to think of like any good stories or, or examples that would be great to monetize this. Nothing's coming to mind at the moment. Of course, it's gonna it's gonna hit me in the shower or something like that. All right. But if like, you think of something later, we'll we'll, we'll drop a, a link to the story in the show notes because that's probably actually the kind of story someone would want to talk about. Yeah, I think too. Like that's a great idea, and I'll definitely come back to it. But like one thing, I would just kind of thought on that is like your side product, in, you know, can become a startup. So like giving away for free at the beginning helps you validate: do people actually want the thing? And then, and I'm actually going through that right now with AISocialBio.com. That's the, the, it's a free Twitter bio generator with AI is I'm looking at ways like, okay, well, like, wow, people actually love this thing. And then now that I've got a cap, captive audience, how do I monetize it? So that's, that's kind of your job as a product manager too, is figuring that out. But I'd love to come back to some examples. So zooming out then, like, what would you say is like the tool belt for the product manager who is thinking about launching free tools? Like, what are the kind, what are your favorite tools that you use that maybe help you with kind of like piecing some of this together, cutting development time down, uh, and making it so you can get some of these things out or, or even the precursor, getting something out that allows you to validate whether you want to spend 30 days building something. Yeah. So the stack that I would highly recommend that is that you want to use, I almost use on, on every launch is with Bubble, Webflow, Zapier, Airtable. You can do a lot with those tools. I know there's, there's a lot of tools in the space, but those are the ones where I think are the most powerful and uh, they create the most polished product where nobody knows it's built with no code. Essentially, it looks seamless. Bubble is extremely powerful. Also, the learning curve for Bubble and Webflow is, is going to take a little time if you do want to take that on. So, like, it's not going to be like, Zapier and Airtable, you could pick up in, in a day or two. Yeah, Airtable's... those are just connectors. I mean, right. Airtable, you're talking about basically a quick and dirty spreadsheet or database. And Zapier, of course, we all know is like, how do I connect X to Y? But I'm curious on, on Bubble and Webflow, how do you think about one versus the other? Because in theory, like, there's probably at least a little bit of overlap on the Venn diagram of what they each can do. Yeah. So if you can accomplish it in Webflow and you feel confident you have that skill set, use it because you could probably do it faster. But for more powerful type of things with API calls, you're going to have to use Bubble. So like for a couple examples, Webflow, for example, we created, we used an, a form with Typeform, connected it to Airtable through Zapier, and then uploaded it with WhaleSync to a Webflow CMS, their answers. And then in Airtable, I put all of the calculations and all of the business logic to then create an output that we then stored in the Webflow CMS and then displayed it on Webflow. And we actually use Webflow's new membership feature. I was comfortable with all those tools and so was able to zip through it. 
for with Bubble, like we created a Twitter wall called Community Tip Jar, where we were pull, pulling in Twitter's API, and then we were displaying the tweets in like a Twitter wall fashion. Like, you need a more complex tool. So it's kind of like the way that advice that that I no kind advice that I've always given to the hundreds of folks is start and Steve Jobs talks about this. Start with like what's the best user experience. Work backwards into the tools instead of don't think of like what can I create with this and then try to create a customer for it. And so that's been really helpful in how I've thought about like, well, what, how do I, how do I build this? Cool. That's great. Was there anything we didn't cover today that you really wanted us to, to talk about related to generating free tools? I think we try, I tried to really uh, excavate this whole thing, but is there anything you feel like we missed? No, it was phenomenal. It was best podcast I've ever done. And I'm super grateful. Like just thought deeply about the questions and, wish I would have done this sooner just to try to educate more people about side products. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful, very thankful for this. This was awesome. Cool. I do think that there is one thing I wanted to emphasize. I actually skipped the question on our script here, but I, I think it's worth recapping here. It's just think less about this as something where you're trying to prioritize this against your general product roadmap. Like If you have a pod where you are in charge of delivering X and Y and Z, if you want to do this, like it seems like, and you can confirm Michael if I'm on the right track based on our conversation, but it seems like if you want to do this, you need to like either chunk off like one engineer who's just going to commit to doing this for like six months to a year, or you want to work with people externally who are going to collaborate with you. And this is like 20% of your time and 80% is the core features your company needs. But it, it seems like from the success that you've seen that that you don't want to have this compete against your roadmap directly. You need to have this as kind of like a separate thing that you're trying to accomplish with its own goals and metrics. Exactly. Yeah, well said. And that's and that's the power of no code is that as a product manager, you, you hopefully should have at least, you know, some technical, you know, know how and you don't need to know how to code. That's a beautiful thing. But then you can at least create a POC that's very basic. So then when you're communicating that to management, you have an artifact and it's not just like an idea on paper. So and uh, as product managers, kind of like one of the things we do is we figure out a way to get it done, right? So would advocate for that and and it would help, I think, any organization, especially as just with the climate, it's your your organic reach is 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 continuing to dwindle. As cost is going up, costs running we're in a recession, so it's it's harder and harder to grow. And so, you know, you could create these things really, really relatively low cost. It's just time, you know, and, and brings and help bring value, outsized value that most people are not doing right now. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like to me then, like if I'm a early product manager at a startup or I'm a, I'm a VP of product, I want to try to convince somebody like one layer above me to sign off on doing this. What I heard from you is first, you want to talk about the fact that like, hey, our current channels for growth are very competitive. And this is more of a potential green, green space or blue ocean, whatever phrase you like the best. And then two is it allows your business to kind of differentiate and build more value that actually can help further steps on the chain like you shared that example with Threado. So I guess if I if you're trying to convince someone one layer above you that that like is would need to sign off on this like are those key things is there anything you would add that maybe helps them build that case where like hey they're maybe halfway there and they need to get their boss across the line on why they should let them take like hey we're planning for 2023 now for some PMs like you know how can they make the case that one of the things they should do is like hey I want to have one engineer that does does like six of these next year, or I want to have some budget set aside where I'm going to contract with some people to get some of these experiments out the door and I'll work with marketing on it. Like, how would you think about kind of building the case to your boss to want to do this? 
Yeah, great question. If you can't, yeah, kind of build it. Even if you can build it, you know, that's great. It's you still. I think your boss, a lot of bosses, might need a little bit more convincing with like data. And one of the best things that I've found, especially like when working with startups, is like showing what other startups have done. Like showing like real examples. Like, hey, this is what they did. And granted, you might not know exact data from it. Like showing, kind of making that association to build your business case has been hugely helpful. And it's, as a PM. I'm not adept to that. I'm used to that as PM, but also like trying to convince a startup to work with, like, you know, there's a level of trust. So how much level of trust do you have? Well, if you have examples and inspiration, it's so much easier to kind of like show that. And then, and then it's, it's very simple to connect the dots. And, and then also too, like how big is your ask? And, you know, going full fledged in the strategy, it's a big ask versus like, maybe can you do a, do a couple or three would be kind of like a good starting point. Like, can you just do three and have be committed to that? and use other examples will help. And so where can people go to see some of these examples? Yeah, great question. So you can go to sideproductledgrowth.com. There's some examples there. What I need to do a better job is opening up my library of where I've got hundreds of examples. Um, you can reach out to me on Twitter. I'll be happy to like share those with you. Like you don't have to meet, you know, just happy to help you on your journey. And I need to do, and I tweet about examples that I see all every week to try to give inspiration. Nice. That's great. So this has been awesome. Michael, thank you so much for joining me and sharing all your knowledge. I, I think this really kind of lifts the curtain on how these can work and the real devil in the details of making this happen. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm honored, honored to have you and I had fun talking about it. It's a subject I love and got me to think introspectively a lot too. So this was super helpful for me, Jason. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Awesome. Great. Well, this has been Practical Product. Please check out our show notes. We're going to load up all the links that Michael was mentioning so you can dive as deep as you want to on this. And hopefully we'll see a lot more awesome side products launched in 2023 because of this. Awesome. Sounds great. Sounds great.